I mean, the two things from my first meeting I took away was be where your feet are and do the next right thing. That got me through the first 60 days. I was where my feet were at all times. I was not living in the past. I was not trying to, to go there. I was not trying to worry about the future. I was just being right there. And I just kept doing the next right thing. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, howdy, folks. That was the voice of Miss Laura R. that you heard at the beginning of this episode. More about her in just a moment. But first things first, this episode is brought to you by Jim, Clay, Kath, and Janice. Jim, Clay, Kath, and Janice all went to our website, Soberspeak.com. They clicked on the donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Jim, Clay, Kath, and Janice for your generosity. This episode is for you. I sure do appreciate it. So let me talk about Miss Laura R for a moment. And then I'm going to talk about something uh, real exciting, at least from my perspective. We'll talk about step six a little, and then we'll go into Laura's episode. So Laura R. is going to discuss the accident that she witnessed as a nine-year-old on her way to school and how that particular accident changed the trajectory of her life in many different ways. She's going to discuss the death of her father. She would discuss her family, and she's also going to discuss her career, including her days as a prosecutor in the family violence section of the district attorney's office. I know, I just know you're going to enjoy Laura's story. So all of you beautiful souls out there, I've told you many times over, that I think about you guys, um, I pray about you, I pray about you, I pray for you, um, I'm always thinking about you guys, and uh, um, because of that, this idea has been noodling around my little pea brain for quite some time now, and I finally feel like it's the right time to take some action on this. So there are so many of you out there that I would love to meet in person and have the opportunity to do that, and I feel now is the right time to have a live event. Yes, a live Sober Speak event. So details are coming together um, as I'm uh, kind of working my way through this. But suffice it to say, 
I would absolutely love to meet you in person if, if you were able to do that. Now, I know that some of you, oh gosh, live in different countries all across the world and, you know, it's going to be next to impossible for you to get here, but especially for my homies in the Texas area, uh, I'm hoping you can get in. Uh, and even if you do live out of state and you can make it in, we would love to see you, but obviously no pressure. Uh, but I would just like to, to be able to put my arms around some of you and hug you and, and let you know that I've been thinking of you and just kind of put a, a, a name to a face. And I want you to be able to meet all the other guests, the ones that are able to come, um, uh, uh, I want you to be able to to see the guests that have been part of the Sober Speak uh, uh, interviewee uh, panel, if you will, and I want you to be able to meet them. So anyway, right now I'm thinking it's probably going to be in late August or early September uh, for a get together here in the Dallas, Texas area. Uh, I'm going to hold the shindig here in, uh, like I said, the Dallas, Texas area. And as soon as I get a venue nailed down and a date, I will let everyone know, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. Um, it's going to be the same format as the podcast. In other words, I'll bring in a guest, interview him or her, but I'll probably let some of you ask questions, right? And, uh, more to come on that later. All right. So in honor is that how you would say it? I guess so. In honor of step six, or in, in honor of the month of June, I am going to read something from step six in the 12 and 12. And for those of you reading along at home, this will be page 65 in the 12 and 12. And it says, so step six we're entirely ready to have God remove all of these defect of character is AA's way of stating the best possible attitude one can take in order to make a beginning on this lifetime job. This does not mean that we expect to have all of our character defects to be lifted out of us as the drive to drink was. A few of them may be, but with most of them, we shall be content with patient improvement. The key words entirely ready underline the fact that we want to aim at the very best we know or can learn. So a couple things stood out to me there in that paragraph. And one is this is a lifetime job. And the other is the phrase that we shall be content with patient improvement. So I have to ask myself, am I content with patient improvement? And I can tell you, I've been doing this a few 24 hours. Patient improvement is the name of the game. Uh, in the beginning, I thought I was going to have every single defect of character from me lifted the moment I did that sixth and seventh step. Did not work out that way, folks. And it still continues to be patient improvement with me. All right. So if you want to be part of the secret Facebook group, or if you just want to, to receive the email notifications that I send out, just send your email to me at john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. And I will tell you, if you're in the Facebook group, Miss Cassandra created a recovery 
birthday document in there. And if you don't have your recovery birthday document, uh, or if you don't have your date on that recovery birthday document for your recovery birthday, uh, please provide it on the document. And Miss Cassandra will uh, keep up with that accordingly. All right. So now on to Miss Laura R. And we will be back with some Mm, I'm calling it listener feedback this week, but I'm getting a lot of suggestions from you guys on what to call it. I don't know what I'm going to settle on quite yet. Anyway, but we will have listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy Miss Laura R. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Miss Laura R. So Laura, why don't you go ahead and give you introduce yourself and give your sobriety date if you wish, please. Um, I'm Laura. I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober since April 14th, 2018. April 14th, 2018. So you have just celebrated one year and some change being sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, correct? That's correct. I've got my husband reminded me that I have a 13 months on Tuesday. So <laughs> that's great. Speaking of your husband, and uh, we don't always have this, but I love that he's actually here in the room with us today. He's going to be a, a quiet mouse, I guess, there in the back corner of the room, right? Yeah, that'd be a change, but yes, I yeah. think so. Yeah. <laughs> and John, if you want to grab any of those yoga mats while we're doing this, you can just, uh, you know, help yourself <laughs> to some relaxation over there, right? Just to kind of introduce this, I'm I have known Laura for her entire sobriety. I remember when she came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I told her that I kind of had my eye on her as a candidate for sober speak when she first came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was kind of waiting for her to pass that year mark just to make sure she was serious about it. Because as you know, we see people come in and go out. And uh, once you pass that year mark, I said, will you please come over and be on Sober Speak? And she cordially agreed to do such. I appreciate you asking. Glad you're here. All right. So, Laura, this is all about you. Let's go about, let's go back in your story a little bit. So, uh, why don't you just kind of tell me a little bit about your, your family growing up, where you came from, where you were born, and we'll start there and kind of move around. Okay. Well, I, um, I was raised in Arizona. I lived kind of on the Scottsdale Tempe border back in the seventies. Um, well, all the way actually through college, honestly, I was the youngest of four kids and my parents were great party hosters. We had, uh, my parents actually bought our house so they could have parties in it. The largest Oktoberfest in the nation started in my backyard in, the largest Oktoberfest yes. in the nation started in your backyard yep, in Tempe, Arizona. Yep. Well, that well. So how did it how did it grow to grow? The, yeah. I don't know how it grew, but it's uh, uh, my my parents, along with some good friends, started having an Oktoberfest as a fundraiser. Are for, they German? For, yes, my family is. Okay. But as an event, and they had sauerkraut and a couple kegs in our backyard, and then it grew out of our backyard into Tempe Park, and then grew and it takes over downtown Tempe, Arizona, every year. Oh, that's great. Okay. So, it's a claim to fame for that so area. Just like on HGTV where you see people buying homes and they say, we want to buy this home because we can have lots of friends and yes. parties over here. They were they were those parents. That was that was what it was. We had St. Patrick's Day parties. We had lots of 
parties <laughs> growing right. up. So I saw lots of alcohol coming in and out and people drinking responsibly and doing fine. I just thought that was a normal way of life that you had a drink every day and you had parties and at parties you drank too much and that's what you did. So for the most part, though, it sounds like you saw responsible drinking around you. Is yeah, that for right? the most part. Yeah. I mean, people would end up spending the night at our house or whatever because they were too. And this is before Uber, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I don't think any, but there weren't fights. There was no you know, arrest. There was nothing crazy going on. It was just, this is what you do as an adult. So you're growing up there in the party house. Oktoberfest is is blossoming. Can you point to anything, I guess, within your childhood where you would say, you know, this was a turning point for me? Yeah, I had. um, So when I was nine years old, I was involved. um, I was walking to school. I wasn't involved in it. I witnessed it. Um, And with my group of friends and um, a few of them ended up crossing a road where we weren't allowed to cross. It was was a a crosswalk that didn't have a crosswalk guard on the way to school. So our parents said, you guys can walk to school, but you can't cross that street. Well, two of the little girls decided to cross over that street. And at the exact same time, unfortunately, um, a 22-year-old, I found, I never realized how young she was until I grew up, but a 22-year-old had just had a gotten beat up by her husband and was holding her baby and driving and not paying attention. And she ran through the stop sign and struck uh, Jennifer and Stacy were the little girls. And then this uh, boy named Michael who tried to push him out of the way. And so struck all three of them. I don't really remember. Like I, I remember parts of it. I remember, you know, crying and scream. I mean, hearing screaming and, and I can kind of smell it, like smell what an accident smells like afterwards, but I kind of lost some time in that. So uh, Jennifer was very, very, very still because she was she actually ended up dying a traumatic brain injury. Stacy was screaming because she had broken legs and hips and she was conscious. And Michael was he ended up being paralyzed from the waist down, but he he was just kind of whimpering or whatever. Like, I remember that kind of stuff. But the reason why I think to me that was such as I mean, there's lots of reasons why that's a huge significant event. But that hole I felt in my chest and in my heart, just that feeling of emptiness and loneliness and lack of control. That was the very first time I felt it. And I remember, although I can hear the I can hear some of the sounds and I can smell some of the smells and I can feel the weather that morning still, um, that feeling of emptiness that is what prevailed. That's what stuck sticks with me. That is what I felt that day. Yeah, that's that was the strongest feeling of emptiness I ever had. With the oddness of the very first time I ever believed in God, too, it all happened in the same moment. So it was kind of weird for me. Talk to me about the days after that. I mean, do you remember uh, even the hours after that, the days after that? I do. What's weird is my memory, and I think your brain protects your brain, you know, protects yourself a little bit. I really don't remember being at the accident scene. I I, I remember parts of it, like I said. I told uh, my husband a couple weeks ago, I was like, I I have one memory that's in two different locations on the street. I don't know which one's right anymore. You know what I mean? So I think your brain kind of corrects things and does things. Um, I don't remember calling my mom. I don't remember. I kind of remember being at school. I remember my mom coming and getting me and taking me home. I remember sitting on my bathroom floor on my knees at my bathtub praying. I had a glass of orange juice to my right. I can still see it praying on my knees that God would not 
let Jennifer die, that oh. Jennifer would stay alive. Because Jennifer, although I was friends with Stacy too, and we were all in Bluebirds together and stuff, Jennifer was my best friend. We were in gymnastics together. We were in Campfire Girls at that point together. She was at my house Saturday before this. So this was on a Wednesday. Saturday night, she spent the night at my house. I mean, she was in my group. We did flip-flop. We were in gymnastics, so we competed together. And my lucky number is 24, and it's on all my stuff. Well, her last competition number was 24. So that's why 24 ends up being my lucky number in life. But I went home and I prayed to God that she would stay alive. And um, the school counselor called and told my mom I needed to go back up to school, which my mom now knows that probably wasn't the best thing, but um, ended up taking me up to school. And the, and the relevant part of that for me and the, and the part I remember, I don't remember getting in the car. I don't remember any of that. I remember driving down 68th Street and we got to about McKinley, which was the crossroad on the way to my school. And I got this overwhelming sense of serenity. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I know now what it was. It was this, God's got this, you're going to be okay. That feeling I had, that hole in my chest I had was filled for a minute. I immediately became not afraid to die. I became okay in life, okay with God. I believe that was my spiritual experience. It really was. And then I got, I already knew, I knew it was Jennifer dying is what it was at that moment. And it was kind of God preparing me for that. So I got to school. I don't remember going to school. I don't remember being in the classroom. I just remember Mrs. Plummer, our counselor, pulling me out of my fourth grade class, me and my friend Kyle, another friend of mine who was at the accident, and telling us that Jennifer had died, which we already knew. I mean, I already knew. I already felt it. And then they went on announcements and announced it to the rest of the school. And that was all on the same day? That was all within two hours. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, well, yeah, by nine, by, by 10 o'clock in the... By 10 o'clock in the morning, that, that had all happened. So then we went to, I stayed at school until my sister was really mad at my parents for making me go to school, not making me, but having me at school. So my sister came and ended up getting me <laughs> later on that day. But then I don't have memory. You said days after, I don't have any memory of anything except going to Jennifer's house and helping her mom clean out her room and getting some stuff. I remember that. I remember the funeral vaguely because I wrote a letter to Jennifer and they ended up, my our gymnastics coach ended up reading it at the funeral. I remember that part of the funeral. And I remember touching her face. They had her, they had her in a casket with an open casket and um, they had her looking perfect. And I remember touching her face. And that's, and I don't remember like really the rest of fourth grade after that. I don't remember anything in details. What a way to start out fourth grade and as mm. life as a nine-year-old. Yeah. Okay, so you get past fourth grade, uh, you've had this traumatic experience. Anything significant from, uh, I guess, fifth grade up until the time you got into college? Anything going on there? When did you start to drink? Um, I remember a friend spending the night and we got into my dad's, I think, whiskey um, or something like 14, 15, I probably drank. And I remember being really hungover the next day, like gross hungover. And I remember thinking if I just had another drink, I'd probably feel better. That whole hair of the dog started my very first time I got really drunk, which I didn't know. Um, But nothing significant. I mean, I, I have always been, I've always had control issues. I've always had lots of friends. I've always managed friends. So I've always, in high school, I had groups of friends and I was the one going, let's go to the river. Let's go do this. Like I was that person. I I had no problem going and getting people to buy us beer and alcohol. I was, um, you know, I've never really been shy. So I would go up and ask adults to buy us beer and stuff. I lived near Indian reservations. So I would go and, and they weren't allowed to have alcohol. On, it was Navajo Indian. And so anyway, I would go and find the liquor store 
closest to the reservation and I would manipulate that situation to get beer. And my and not that I had to drink it, but I had to have a party. I liked parties. So if I was going to have a party, I had to have a case of beer. So I'd go get a case of beer and and have my own little party. I always um, and all the way through adulthood, all the way through my drinking days, if there wasn't a happy hour, I made a happy hour. So <laughs> regardless if I was drinking or not, you know what I mean? Regardless, <laughs> even when I was pregnant, I did. I mean, regardless if I was actually actively drinking or my alcoholism was was you know, up front. So I drank a lot. I mean, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get, I didn't have that every day had to drink. I didn't have any of those things, but I did have that emptiness that, that, that sense of serenity I had when I was nine years old, when Jennifer died, it went away. It, I lost it. I look back now and think, I hate, I mean, this is just my brain thinking that God was showing me, this is what you can have. I'm going to take it away, but you're going to get it back. And so because I felt it, I knew it from that moment on. I was never scared of dying. I was had a belief in God, a strong belief in God. I just seemed to lose that sense of, of fulfillment or serenity until I got into the program. So let's talk about your college years. You mentioned uh, briefly, I believe, that you had met your husband in college. No, law school. Law school. Yeah. Okay. So wh- wh- where'd you go to college? Uh, University of Arizona. All right. So and I really didn't party that much. In, I think because I partied so much in high school, I really didn't. I kind of calmed down a little bit for college and, and um, I didn't have any money. You know, I was working lots of jobs and trying to get through school. So and I knew I wanted to go to law school. Um, you know, part of that accident, one of the main things I wanted to go to law school and be a, a family violence prosecutor, because I always kind of blamed the the driver's husband or boyfriend, whatever he was for assaulting her and causing the accident. So it really kind of encouraged me. I mean, I want to laws in my family anyway, but I really did. I kind of wanted to, to go and do that to help. I know, I know it was in the back of my, my head and my heart to prevent future accidents happening because of domestic violence. So, so I want to go back real quickly to that scene and uh, what happened with the lady? Did she ever do? She, um, no, she lost her driver's license for 10 years. And I remember as a kid, I was very angry with her. She ended up being on my resentment list, but now I can kind of work through it. I almost feel like I owe her an amends, but I was very angry that that was all she got. But I mean, she, she's 22 years old and had to live with killing two little girls. I mean, I think that was probably enough. For me, at least. So now you're going through school, you're in college. Anything significant there before we go into law school that you want to mention? No, not really. I don't think. I mean, I was just trying to get through school. Understood. <laughs> I was working. <laughs> All right. So then you get into law school. Right. right. Where'd you go to law school? Uh, St. Mary's in San Antonio. Take, take me through there. Is that when the drinking started to pick up? Yes. That's when the very first time in my head I told myself I think I have a drinking problem. I am um, my first day of law school. Well, let me just tell you, I absolutely love law school. I had it was such a great time. But I we walked in. Sister Grace was the nun for the law school and she was behind a keg in a margarita machine my first day of school. <laughs> so, you know, you walk in, you know, you're raised in a family where alcohol's fine and it's good and it's healthy and it's fun and it's not dangerous. And then you um, go into a law school where everybody's drinking and it's fun and it's not dangerous. You know, I mean, you just, but you know, I don't drink like other people. It was great. I drank, I excelled. I did really well in law school. I was really lucky that way. Luckily, I didn't have the money to drink the way um, I did as an adult because I didn't have the money. I was, I mean, again, I was putting dimes together to make my tuition and stuff like that. So it wasn't like I had a bunch of extra income for, for that. But being the good alcoholic that I am, I did find every free wine tasting in town. I became friends with every good bartender that would give me something free. I made the best of the situation, but I certainly wasn't able to to drink like I was once I 
was making money and doing doing well financially. So, so how long were you in law school? Three years. And is that where you met your husband? Yes. Yeah, we met when I was um, a third year. He was a second year. How long was it before y'all got married? Three years to the day that we met. All right. So you get out of law school. You move where after that? Uh, moved up here. Moved to Plano. Well, let me back up. I actually, he was, uh, my husband was still in law school. So I, um, I ended up being a prosecutor in San Antonio which was freaking fantastic, but a huge party. That's where I started daily drinking. I worked in law school. After I did well my first year, I didn't have to work as hard my second and third year because I already had job opportunities because I had a high GPA and I was and I was already working at the DA's office. I was an intern and I became friends with all the good felony prosecutors. I, I found my mentors quickly and I attached to them. One of them still one of my best friends. And they kind of took me under their wing and treated me like I was already out of law school. So I was able to work there. Every day we went out drinking at the Cadillac bar across the street and would have, I drank beer back then because that's all I could afford. And that's where I learned that as an attorney, um, it is A-OK to drink every day. Because we all did. Everybody I knew did. The judges, the defense attorneys, the prosecutors. We all went every day, all the interns. And then we just drank every single day. And I was able to balance school, working, drinking. And that's where I, you know, began that little bit of a of a juggling act. From an outsider looking in, you know, like a prosecutor, you always think about, oh, wow, that's kind of a cool job. It's an awesome uh, job. I mean, <laughs> so as a prosecutor, just kind of describe your day-to-day Activities well, because I was an intern, and then I turned, and then they offered me a job as a, a prosecutor once I got my law license. I ended up, you know, you have to start down kind of at the bottom at the DA's office. So I was in the family violence section, which was my whole purpose of going to law school, and I, I did uh, protective orders for the DA's office. So basically, you know, it, mainly women. I'm being sexist, but women would come in and and be in pretty bad domestic violence situations for the DA's office to even accept their case. There had to been something major happen to this person. And so it was, it was really intense work really quickly. And I didn't know because I was in criminal world, not in the family law world, but I would have to figure out child custody because dad wouldn't be around the mom. And I had to figure all that out, child support, all that stuff. And I had about 35 cases a day. I mean, it was a lot that just kept coming in. And so it was a lot of pressure. And I was scared because, um, you know, if I if I denied someone a protective order or if I didn't do a good enough job and the court denied it and then they ended up dead or hurt, it was on me. And so I figured out really quickly uh, because I'm a controlling person and I could and I'm arrogant and I could fix everyone's problems that I had to do my very, very best and had to make sure I put all that pressure on me. It was all on me. I was going to have to save this person. I was going to have to, you know, do the very best I could possibly possibly do. And if I failed, then it was, I mean, if they got hurt, then it was my fault. If they were safe, then it was my fault. I kind of started that mentality. And I, and that continued really through my law practice. I kind of felt that way um, until I learned that I don't control every little person <laughs> in the planet. Right. So. That's very interesting. Okay. So, all right. So some, at some point you made it from uh, San Antonio to Dallas, I guess, after that. Uh, talk to me about your life in Dallas. By this time, are you married? No, th- three years after that. Right. right? So after- we ended up, John ended up finishing law school and he ended up having a job with a firm here. And so, um, and, and the plan was always if we got married to move back here. But I, I had, I had very good friends in San Antonio and I, I, you know, loved it there, but I didn't have the roots. I didn't have the family. My whole family's, you know, in Arizona. So, so we moved uh, up here and I worked for a firm shortly, but then we got married and I got pregnant with my oldest son. There was no way I was driving to Dallas every day anymore with a baby. So we ended up opening up our own business, our own law firm 
back in uh, 99 or 2000. So how many kids do you have? Three. Three. Yeah, I have three boys. They're uh, 14, 15, and 18. Okay, so you're working as a partner in a law firm. Uh, you have three boys that uh, you're raising. Sounds like you're pretty busy. Where did alcohol and or uh, any other sort of substances come into the picture here? Yeah, I'm, only, I'm really grateful and very blessed to feel that alcohol's really been my only issue. Not really, it has been my only issue. Um, the idea of it's funny when I hear people say they start with alcohol, then go to marijuana and then go to other stuff like that idea. Just it kind of not grosses me out, but I'm just like, I mean, a good glass of Chardonnay I get, right? <laughs> Smoking a joint. I don't really get, I don't understand that, but whatever, teach their own. It's the same. It's still the same hole that you're filling, right? That's still that emptiness you're feeling. But really for me, I mean, I was okay. I was, I would say that, um, you know, if I'm honest with myself, there were plenty of times where I drank too much during, you know, when, after my, when my kids were little and we would go and, and alcohol was always part of it. And I love wine and I love going to Napa Valley and all those things happen. I, I, I would drink to blackout. I would miss the mark. If I, if I would have taken the alcohol test, are you an alcoholic? You know, they usually say 10 things. If I'd been honest with myself 10 years ago, taking that, I, I would have known I was an alcoholic, but I think, um, I was, I could, well, I can, I can go three days and not drink. I could do this. I, I could go 30 days and not drink. I could, I work out every single day. I mean, I have three kids. I run a, a large law firm and I work out every day and you know, my husband's successful and, and I, you know, I got my shit all together. I, I, I got this. I'm not an alcoholic. But what really ended up happening, um, there would be moments where I would miss the mark, moments where I'd black out, moments where I would mean not to drink and I would. But what really happened was my dad died in 2015. I felt grief. I mean, let me go back. When you're when you have trauma, and especially at a young age, I'm learning now. Of course, I didn't learn this before until I got sober. But your brain rewires how you think. And your brain protects yourself from being too close to people and too connected with people because you don't want to be hurt. And you don't want it just, I mean, your brain, my brain at a very young age was rewired to, to not feel pain, to compartmentalize, to minimize, to push things to the side and move forward because that's what I had to do as a kid. My parents were very supportive. According to my mom, she was a lot more supportive than I remember. But after about a month, I was told I had to put Jennifer's stuff away. I had, it was time for me to move on. You had to go forward. That's all they knew back in 1981, right? They didn't know. I mean, I didn't even go to a counselor. I mean, you look back now and go, oh my God, I would have been off at some you know, camp for three months figuring out. But I didn't even go to a counselor. I mean, I just dealt with this all in my head. So I taught myself how to deal with pain and grief and sadness and loneliness and that empty feeling I had. I taught myself how to deal with it, which was to completely avoid it. And move it aside and move forward. And in some ways that served you well. It served me so well. I got through life. I mean, I did great. I've been successful. I, you know, overall, I'm a pretty happy person. But when my dad died, I had real grief and I had real feelings and I had absolutely zero skills on how to deal with it. And I couldn't, I kept trying to move it. I kept trying to do what I always did in survival. Get it, compartmentalize, minimize, move. It kept coming back. And so I kept drinking. 
because I kept wanting to get rid of it. So I had kind of the perfect storm because I had that. My business was doing really well. And I had I had a credit card that I wasn't accountable to at home. I had a credit card that was paid for work and I could put whatever I wanted. on. I mean, not whatever, but you know what I mean? I had, I had plenty of room for alcohol on that card. And so between not having the, the financial ramifications of drinking too much, not having and not having the ability to handle emotions and negative emotions, it, it turned into it just evolved into a perfect storm of daily drinking and um, not being able to quit on my own. Did your dad die suddenly or was it expected? It was expected. It just wasn't expected that month. He had just gotten put on hospice. So, I mean, we knew we knew he was declining, but they, they'd given him. I mean, they were like, you know, we, we're just starting the process. I mean, we had just started the hospice process and it wasn't like it was it was like a year plan. You know, so it wasn't like, OK, we're going to get him on hospice and he's going to die. I was in Napa Valley at a bunch of wine tastings when my dad died. So I have that alcohol guilt there too, because I was enjoying, you know, I was drunk. Not the day, the day it happened in the morning. So I wasn't, but I, the reason I wasn't with my dad, the entire reason I wasn't with my dad was because I was in Napa Valley because that was more important to me at the time. Okay. So your dad dies, you're going through this incredible grief. Uh, you don't know quite how to process that, if you will. Take me through the next year or two and what's happening there. Well, just, it's really a block of, yeah, it's three years because 2015 to 2018 is really, and it wasn't that it was an, at that point, I'm not drinking every day, but I'm drinking a lot. It's, it's off and on during that. I got on medication. I thought, okay, if I just had some antidepressants, that'll help me. Right. I got to deal with this. Well, the antidepressants I got on were way too strong and, and I was still drinking with them. So I'm like on these, I'm on an antidepressant, (laughs) taking a depressant. I mean, I'm doing this roller coaster deal. Work's getting very busy. So I'm working a whole bunch, but, but I'm making sure at work that before I go home, I have two glasses of wine or I have a vodka soda or what that starts becoming part of the day. And, and again, I'm not obsessing over it at this. I mean, I am inside, but I'm not, it's not like I'm coming home drunk. It's not like, um, um, every once in a while I would be really, really drunk and he would have to come get me every once in a while I would, he and I would go out and, you know, he'd say, let's just have two drinks. And I would make sure when he's in the bathroom, I'd order another round to make sure we got another round. These are happening every once in a while. And then, and then they started happening a little bit more and then it started going a little bit more. And then by, by 2000, 18 in that January is when I was supposed to, I think that, yeah, that was January. I was going to quit drinking for a while. I didn't, I couldn't do it. And then in March, my husband quit drinking. And that was about the, (laughs) that's, it's, it's interesting because I want to say March, he, he may have started a little bit before then actually to quit drinking. But I just remember in March, I couldn't not drink. And so we're on spring break. He thinks I'm not drinking. He thought I quit with him. We're at spring break and I'm standing in my mom's pantry doing shots of vodka. So no one will know that I had to have a drink that day. I mean, he had no idea. I mean, we went to dinner and I was like, well, I think I'm just going to have one glass of wine. Well, I like slammed the glass, ordered another one while he was in the bathroom so that he didn't know I'd already had a glass and then I had another one. I mean, 2018 is when the lying of the drinking really started. So every time, so we had all the rules, just like the big book says, Um, I'm not going to drink at home. Okay. I'm not going to drink while I'm out. Okay. I'm not going to drink beer and wine. I'm only going to drink the hard stuff and only have one. I'm only going to have two drinks. I'm only going 
going to, you know, every scenario, we did all of that for the last three years, honestly, because it, like I said, it's, I gave you a little snit, snippet of how it started, but then it ramped, it just got worse. So all those little lies that started back here just got worse and worse and worse. And by 2018, I finally in my head knew I had no control over this. I couldn't not drink every day. I had to lie to get my drink. I had to plan my day around having a drink. I mean, that's what ended up happening in 2018. I mean, he would meet me for our two drink rule and I'd already had four drinks. And then he's wondering why one glass of wine is making me slur my words, you know, and you just look back and go, duh, because, I mean, at the time, <laughs> but I thought I was being so smart. He didn't know what a liar I was. You know, he didn't know. You look back now and just go, God, thank God I don't have to live like that anymore. We are cunning. All right. So we're coming right up on your entree into Alcoholics Anonymous. We'll be continuing our conversation with Laura R. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. You can also find the donate button on our website if and only if the spirit moves you to use it. You can. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Miss Laura. All right, the lying is occurring. You are going through that period. Um, how did you hear of AA? Or did you know of AA? When did you start thinking about going to AA? Take me through that. Okay, so I was at that point, I was doing individual counseling, and I had already made it oddly, I made it a commitment to a really good friend of mine that for 2018, our New Year's resolutions, mine was to fix my marriage and drink less. I, of course, didn't say quit drinking because why would I ever want to quit drinking? Um, that was not that was not on the table. That was just to drink less. And 2018, I think God basically said, okay, you're going to fix those two things, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's what's, you know, and that basically. I was, that's basically what happened and got me into AA, but I was with a counselor and she kept saying I needed to go to AA and I kept saying, there's no way I'm going. Um, I, I have too many clients that are in AA. I'm too well known up in this area. I'm not going. What happened the week I went to AA was I went to counseling and I, for the very first time, told somebody how much I drank on a daily basis because realized working up to that, I was getting to the, my day was planned around happy hour, drinking at lunch or drinking at happy hour. And then the rest of my day would happen. So if I had a big case or something I was working on, that obviously took precedent. But I'll tell you what, I was going to have a drink at some point after that was done. So I would you know, work. And then um, if it was going to be an all day deal, I made sure I had a happy hour planned at 530 or, you know, my husband and I were going to meet for drinks. Or if I didn't have anything planned the day, then I knew I could just do my lunch and then I could figure out how it was going to happen for the day. So I every, you know, people say that in meetings. When I had that first drink, everything important to me became not important. It wasn't I didn't even have to have the first drink. My day was planned around having that first drink and nothing else was more important than that. So I would get my work done, but then my family, the things that really matter to me, the things that are most important were not important to me anymore. It came down to that, that, that the week before I came into the trailer, um, I went to counseling and I was honest for the first time with one person 
about how much I drink. And there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who have no idea what the trailer is. So oh, sorry. To them. The trailer is the Alcoholics Anonymous, my home group. Which is <laughs> and, the Frisco group. Yeah, Frisco Texas. group trailer behind the church. Right. They um, stick us in a trailer. Yeah, a double I love line. it. Yeah. And it, it's got a bad green carpet and yeah. uh, a creaky thing walking up to yes. it where I'm sure rats live underneath that trailer but they nonetheless do. and little bunnies and yes. my heels get stuck in the ramp walking up all the time and it's slippery sometimes but it's it's the coolest trailer I've ever been in in my life so. and it smells musty but it's, it's where musty. we find God <laughs> yep I'll tell you there's more God in that trailer than any church I've ever been in there's no doubt about that so that week so I was honest with her about my drinking and she basically looked at me and said you know you're gonna die of this if you don't fix it and it was for the first time I knew that I knew alcoholism killed. I just never had anybody say it to my face and where I actually believed it. And I was like, I know, but I can't stop drinking. I can't do it. I can't go a day without having a drink. I cannot. I mean, I had to sit there and tell her that like 15 times. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. And she's like, well, you need to go to rehab. I'm like, I'm not going to rehab. Well, you need to go to AA. I was that horrible client, the one that doesn't follow any of my advice. I was that person to her. And finally, she said, what would you do if you were a client walking into your office? What would you tell you know, he or her to do. And I, I told her and she goes, that's what you need to do. And that basically was go to, um, a, a therapist that specialized in addiction, get on a thing called Soberlink, which is a, um, breathalyzer type device. That's you can report to the court or you can report to a family member and then go to AA. And she goes, I know you're not going to go to the Frisco group. Cause she kept saying the Frisco group's fantastic. Frisco group is great. I said, I'm not going. It's like, you know, two miles from my office, not doing it. And just out of curiosity, do you did you ever actually see clients in there when you when you came in? What? I did not. I have not seen clients. I've sent clients. Gotcha. <laughs> so yes, and I've got one that's been. I mean, she's going on like nine months right now. I'm really proud of her. So yeah, I've actually actually I've twelve step quite a few clients since I've been in the program. Got you. So, but your fear on the front end is that you would see people that would actually know you yeah. in your profession. Right? And you have the judgment of oh, you're an AA, and people have that negative deal, right? They they do, and you have to be honest about it and realize that. And I had to be so desperate that I was okay. And that's what happened is I became that desperate that week. So I left there and I called the only person I ever knew that was in AA who happened to be an attorney in the Frisco group, uh, Lisa. Call, I text her because I knew she was at a conference with some of the lawyers that work for me. And I text her and said, hey, not about a case, but I need to talk to you. She, she says that when she saw the text, she knew exactly why I was texting. And she invited me to the women's meeting on Saturday. And I was like, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. So, uh, but we committed to go and she, we committed to meet for coffee. And so I ended up that, I ended up having my drink Friday night. Um, I made a roadie grapefruit tequila which I never drank but it was there and I could and it was an open bottle in my house and I poured it and drank it and I remember thinking to myself what a dumbass drinking this as your last drink this is crazy because I knew the next day I was going to be uh, in the trailer and I knew that I was going to be that I was committed to this and I knew it was going to kill me if I didn't do it so unfortunately my husband had no idea this had happened this entire week he didn't know I was going to AA he didn't know he didn't know anything. So I do have a question about that. So obviously there was a lot of internal turmoil with you, if you will. Mm -hmm. But were the cracks leaking out? Were, were people that you work with, were your family, did they, did they have any clue of what was going on? No, I, I will tell you that obviously my husband knew that I had, well, I mean, he had tried to, although 
out of love and enabling me, he enabled me really bad. I mean, we look back now and go, oh my gosh. I mean, it was, he would meet me for drinks because he didn't want me to drive drunk or he didn't want me to drink too much. Or, you know, he tried to do all those things that a, that a really good enabler does. So he knew it was a problem. It was a huge burden on him. He used to come home and pray that my car would be in the garage when he'd open the garage door. And then when it wouldn't, he would, you know, have that sinking, horrible feeling that of course at the time, I didn't care about because at the time I needed to make sure I got my drink. But I look back now and it just hurts my heart to think about how that must have felt for him to open the garage and not see my car and that desperation of, of, oh my God, where is she? Is she dead? Is she hurting someone? Is she drunk? Is she, you know, who's she with? What's she doing? Kind of thing. So he obviously knew there was a major problem and, and he and I together had talked to, I mean, it ramped up, you know, my dad, I always, I was always the partier. I always enjoyed wine. I always enjoyed a good time, but Little by little, it just, it, it was too much, too much, too much. And then, and then it just got to the point where it's completely out of control. So I do have a question. I think when you went to that counselor, you were kind of trying to do a couple different things, if I'm not mistaken, kind of work on your marriage and work on your drinking at the same time, right? life issues in general. And you know, when people come in and they get sober, obviously that changes the dynamic within the marriage. And you know, your husband's sitting here, I, you know, you always say, don't talk about me. Well, like I'm not sitting in the room Well, we're going to talk about him like he's not sitting in the room here. So what, how did the dynamic change within your marriage at that point? You know, cause you're starting to get a little bit more responsible, whatever the case. Right. Be. Well, so when I came home and told him I was going to a, the next day, I think he had this like deer in the headlights look like this is really happening. Of course, he didn't know how far in the process in my brain already, like I already, he didn't know all the lies yet. Right. I mean, so he didn't, he didn't know all the sneaking. He didn't know I was drinking on that spring break. He thought I was not drinking with him. Not true. So he didn't know how desperate I had become. He didn't know how um, empty I was inside, how really lonely I really was, because it didn't look like it. You know, I love the party, but hated myself. It's in a country song. Um, <laughs> love, No, the song is love the crowd, hate myself. That was kind of me. You know, I love the party. But inside, I was just, I was doing it desperately just to find some peace and serenity in my world, in my inside. So I... Uh, Quit. I mean, the first couple of months when I wasn't drinking, um, I think I think he was trying, and I'm speaking for him, but I think he was just trying to figure out what is this AA thing, and is this really going to work this time? Is this is this the answer? He he'll tell me now. I knew you were going to make it, and I knew you'd be a year, and I knew you know because you're so stubborn and you're so set and goal oriented and all that, which is all true. But I think in the beginning it was just uh, is this just a bunch of crap or what's you know are you really gonna live this program. I think the biggest problem that he and I have had is uh, just the the honesty and making amends and being and being rigorously honest about things. I will tell you, since I've been in the program, it is so much easier in life not to be lying every day. (laughs) I'll tell you, I mean, I didn't realize and that sounds really stupid to say I did not realize what a huge burden all my little stupid lies that I could justify every one of them in some little form or way or it's not a big deal or blow it off. I had no idea idea how much pain and misery that was causing me in my relationship with him and how much just how freeing it is to not have to live that way. I mean, the two things from my first meeting I took away was be where your feet are and do the next right thing. And as long as, and that I'll take, that got me through the first 60 days. I was where my feet were at all times. I was not living in the past. I was not trying to, to go there Um, I was not trying to worry about the future. I was just being right there. And I just kept doing the next right thing, even when it hurt. And I didn't want to do the next right thing because it would have been easier to lie about it or manipulate the situation. 
obviously it's progress, not perfection. As we know, there's been some slip ups here and there on stuff, but, um, but for the most part living that way, it's so much easier than the way I was living before. And it's so much easier not to drink when you're not lying all the time. It's weird, this vicious circle of how that all works. So I think that that was, I mean, the first couple of months, at least I started seeing, not that I saw the promises because I didn't, but I started to seeing how I started feeling that sense of relief of uh, the freedom of just living a good, honest life. I want to talk about that little book you bring to meetings. There's, there's some book that you bring as as a journal, actually, right? Yeah, what it is. And you take, you take copious notes in there. And I absolutely love that. Can you tell me, what do you use that book for? How did you get that idea? Have you had it since the very first day? Yeah, so I, um, oddly, my counselor, so at my office, somebody dropped off. It's like Dallas Child Magazine or whatever. They dropped off a journal like as a Christmas gift. And I just had it on my desk, had it on my desk, had it on my desk. Well, that day I was going to counseling. I was like, oh, I'm going to take this journal and see what she recommends I do to quit drinking because I'm going to write it down. So I took the journal to counseling and I wrote it down. And then I went to the first meeting and I just happened to have it. I thought, well, if they give me good advice, I'll write it down because then I can remember. Because, you know, as an attorney, I take lots of notes anyway. And so I'm just used to taking notes when people are talking. That's what I do. And so I went to that first meeting and it was funny. I didn't I was in such shock in that first meeting. It's kind of a haze. I didn't really take too many notes during the meeting. But after the meeting, I wrote down, everyone seemed really nice. It's weird how normal everyone is. Like, I, <laughs> you should, I mean, it's pretty funny what I wrote. And then I wrote things I have to do today. Be where your feet are. I wrote that down. And I wrote all the things I wanted to get done that day so I wouldn't drink. Because I had to get through that day without drinking. What do you mean the things you had to do? Like clean out the drawer in the bathroom, uh, clean up the media room, clean up, do this. I mean, it was just stuff to get organized because I knew my husband was going to be gone. He was gone most that weekend. I can't remember why. Something. He was sleeping at home, but he was gone during the days. And I didn't want to, I just, I was, I didn't trust myself. Yeah. I had that idle time. Oh dear God, what am I going to do with it? So um, I have all those notes in there. And then I just kept, it just was with my big book because I got my big book that day. Right. So I just kind of kept it with my big book. And then I just started taking notes. And quite honestly, in that trailer, the smartest people I've ever really known that have been vulnerable with me are in that trailer. And so I don't want to miss the opportunity to not write something down when I hear something brilliant. I just want it in my brain. So I have that journal at every meeting. I mean, I maybe one or two meetings I hadn't had it. And the coolest thing is it filled up my entire first year that like at the end, I'm writing on the cover, but my last notes are, are April 13th, my last meeting or April 12th was actually my last meeting before my year. And I have my notes on it. And then, you know, for my year birthday, my sponsor got me a new notebook. And the first day of my year, I went to a meeting and started writing in it. So I have it, I have it in there, but I'll tell you, I have some great stuff in there and I need to go back and really kind of, and I try to tag it. So like, if, if you say something, I try to put your name on it. Or if somebody quotes George, who actually passed away the day before I got sober. I hear more Georgisms is what I call them. And I always write George by him. Like just so I, I don't know the man, but his, his spirit at least is speaking through me on, in my, in my notes. So, oh. so I keep them all. I love them. They're fun to go back and look. Although Steve yesterday, I said, Hey, I wrote you down. You actually said something profound for once. Steve I wrote, G? Yeah, I think it was Steve. Yeah, I think it was Steve G. I said, I actually, uh, you said something profound enough for me to write down on my book. And he goes, that's just creepy. You write down what I say or something. I'm like, no, it just means you were profound. You wrote something I need to think about. So, and I go back and I do read them. I mean, I do try to 
at those times, I'll tell you, well, Go I, ahead. I could share I was this one of the stories I have. Um, I'm going to say a couple months ago, and this is something I actually shared in a meeting this morning, but people think that when you quit drinking, your life gets better. And let me just say that I thought that. I, I, I shouldn't say people. I will say that Laura thinks that my problem with my marriage is I'm drinking and lying to my husband about my marriage. I mean, about my, my drinking. So if I quit drinking and quit lying, my life gets better. So for this record of the past... It's not there anymore. It goes away. Well, that is not true. That's correct. And um, no one told me that, which is okay, because <laughs> I may not have quit. So I'm glad that they didn't tell me. But, um, you know, the wreckage of my past, it was always there, as Nelson will say in a meeting. Uh, it was always there. You just, you were just drunk. You didn't see it. So um, after I got sober, there, it, there was, it, was, it's, it was rough. There's been tidal waves of, of really bad stuff and, and tidal waves of super good stuff. And, it, you know... I've wanted to drink during that year. There is absolutely no doubt. There have been, you know, people, I used to get kind of mad at meetings. Well, I, the, the thought of even drinking just, it goes away. I don't even have it. And I'm like, screw you. I do. Why are you saying that? I have it. I have it right now. And I will tell you probably in about 10 months, 10 months, it was pretty rough time and maybe 10, 11 months. Um, I mean, I'm coming up on my year and I'm feeling really good about my sobriety and I'm way down in the boat. I'm very involved in AA. You know, it's part of my social circle. I'm going to meeting, you know, at least three, if not five, six meetings a week. Very involved with my sponsor. I have sobriety sisters I love and adore. And I'm sitting in a meeting thinking I'm going to drink a really good bottle of, champagne, of Chardonnay tonight. People need to hear this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I'm sitting in my chair, you know, I sit in that second chair that faces the, the door there and I'm sitting in my chair. It's a Thursday, I remember. Uh, my husband was going to be gone that night. And I thought, I've got that one bottle of really... We have a wine room in our house. I mean, that's how much I we love wine. Um, I'm like, I've got that one good bottle of, of Chardonnay. And I can drink it. And nobody's going to know. And it'll taste good. And it'll make me feel better. Because I'm not feeling good. And nothing's working. None of my stuff's working. David G was leading that day. And he's... Actually, it was right after my nine months. That's right. Because it was that... It was in, It was that month. That's right. It was, it was the next week after I got my nine months. And he said, I'm going to talk today about relapse. And I just looked at him and I had a huge smile on my face just because I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> and so he starts talking. I'm the first person he called on. Wow. And um, I shared, you know, I shared, I didn't share what I was thinking at that moment because I hadn't processed it all because I was still thinking it. Honestly, I was like, okay, God, this is God telling me not to do it, not to do it, not to do it. Did the whole meeting after the meeting, I went up to him and I said, you know, David, I was, I was literally sitting there thinking about the bottle of Chardonnay I was going to drink tonight. And you said the topic was relapse. And I just want to thank you for that topic. Cause I, you know, it's going to help me. And he goes, that's great. That's how it works. You know how he is. Hey, it's how it works. That's, that, that's what it's supposed to do. That's why you're supposed to be at this meeting today. I didn't, I didn't not relapse, but I thought it was interesting just to have that. That's why you have to put your butt in the chair at the meetings because you have to be there because had I not gone to a meeting that day, I would have drank that. There's no doubt in my mind I would have drank that Chardonnay. This this infamous bottle of Chardonnay, by the way, I've gotten rid of, but uh, it, it came up again. And I think it's around this time frame because I both these events happened within a couple of weeks of each other. No, no, no. Maybe no. This this other this other event that happened with me when I really wanted to drink uh, happened in January. Had a big just a lot of stress going on, a lot of a lot of wreckage of the past still surfacing, and um, it was in January, and I was home alone, and it was the same bottle of uh, Chardonnay. I pulled it out. And I was going to drink it. And I didn't go to a meeting that day, but I'd gone to counseling or something, marriage counseling, actually, I think. And I pulled that bottle out 
and I went, I think I shared this in a meeting and I went, got our automatic little wine opener thing that we had and it was dead. The damn thing wouldn't do it. It wouldn't go. I couldn't get it to go. And you I mean was like, like the battery. Yeah, the out? battery. So I had the bottle out and I pulled out the, the automatic opener and it was dead. And I'm so freaking grateful it was dead because it gave me that moment, that moment in time to think of the people in the trailer, you know, at the Frisco group. And I didn't think of the, I didn't think of my sobriety sisters or my sponsor. I didn't think of anybody like that. Um, I thought of people like you. I thought of Nelson. I literally walked in my head and said, how am I going to tell, how am I going to get a desire chip tomorrow and look Nelson in the eye and say, I drank for what reason? And (laughs) that stupid dead wine opener gave me the 30 seconds of pause I needed to put everything away. And I just put it away. And I actually told myself, how does this story end? The story ends with me getting drunk, feeling hungover, being shameful, getting a desire chip, letting down people in the Frisco group that I've connected with, that I that I did that. Most importantly, letting my husband and my kids down because I said I was going to do something and once again, didn't do it, even though I've been, you know, going here and however many months it was then, eight months, nine months, whatever it was then. So how's the story end for me? And and I am so grateful for both of those times, to be honest with you, because I was grateful to have the desire to drink and the ability not to, both times. And, and, and the only reason I didn't have the ability not to was because of people in the group. So I want to back up real quick to that, that incident that we started with when you were nine years old. Working through the steps... Has there been any sort of, uh, I, I don't know what, what you would call it, like revelation? Have you been able to process that incident in any different way than you would have when you first came into the program? Yeah, well, it's something that actually just happened to me this week, which is interesting to me. Well, I say that, a couple of things. I'm now doing trauma therapy and doing a different kind of counseling because before when I was blaming everything, it was a drinking or a marriage issue or a drink, you know, and my marriage issue is my drinking problem. I mean, it, my marriage will be fine once I quit drinking. You know, once you, you blame everything on alcohol. And then once you remove alcohol, you realize that it's a thinking problem, not as much as a drinking problem anymore. And so because I was able to get dry brain, I guess, is that what you call it? Dry the brain. opposite of wet brain, dry brain. <laughs> um, I was able to get dry brain um, and uh, be able to actually focus on the issues that, really, that I really needed to, to focus on. And really, it was that emptiness inside that I had. I believe, and I think I said this earlier, but I believe that 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 spiritual experience I had at nine years old of feeling God's presence and being okay and being having serenity in calamity when I was nine years old, I never ever experienced it until I, I honestly, at my year anniversary of of uh, of not drinking on April fourteenth, two thousand nineteen. It was the very first, I was driving, I remember I was driving down Preston Road. It's funny, all these things happen to me in cars, but I was driving down Preston Road and there's chaos going on in my life. There's things going on and unhappy times and things that would make me really, really upset normally. And I was smiling and happy. And and my sponsor said to me, Laura, that's serenity and calamity and in the middle of calamity. And I went, that's exactly what this feels like. And that's exactly what I felt like as a nine-year-old driving down the road, 68th Street, when I when I knew that Jennifer had passed. I had that sense of serenity and that sense with that connection with God that I that I didn't have the rest of my life. So, you know, I had it as a kid and I think it was it was like the carrot to God going, You got this, you can do this. But it just took me another thirty nine years to get there. So I'm just glad I'm there. I mean, and I had it all week. I mean, I, I have stuff happen. I've you know, I have 
we have a very busy family. We have a lot of ups and downs. Life happens. The wreckage of the past is still out there floating around, still dealing with it, still dealing with the ramifications of that. But I have an amazing sense of serenity. And you know what I don't have, and I'm, and I'm going to be my own person that I'm just going to want to punch in a meeting, but I do not have a desire to drink at all. And somebody at lunch yesterday, we went to lunch after the meeting, the noon meeting, and they're like, and I was saying how stressed out I was or whatever. Well, do you have a desire to drink? And this was a newly sober person. And I went, you know, you're not going to like hearing this, but never even crossed my mind that Bala Chardonnay is not existent to me. It doesn't, it's not there anymore. It's not, that is so not a solution for me. My solution is my solution is really thanking God for all the experiences I've had and trusting God that he's got this and not me. And people say that, but God, to say it and actually mean it, it's so freeing and so peaceful. You've been placed in that position of neutrality, like it talks about in the 10th step in the big book. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, I remember when that came to me. All right. So is there anything that you want to make sure that you get out there before we wrap this up, Laura? Anything that comes to mind for you? I feel like I've talked so much. I'm probably... Well, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I know. That's why I bring you in here. Um, I would just say to the newcomer, I promise you the promises happen. And they just don't happen the way you think they're going to. But that's because you're a control freak. And you need to let go of that control and just realize it all it, it all works out. You just got to keep doing the next right thing. Uh, and the other thing that I do remember one day from the meeting, uh, Laura is a very accomplished woman and she is a real driver. And she was reading through the big book one day, coming up with a topic. And it talked about the term and then our women folk. Yes. <laughs> Yes, you liked that. That was funny. I did like that. <laughs> That's when you said, I think we should leave these meetings to the women folk or something like that. <laughs> right. These women folk do very yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's close it up with uh, page 164 in the big book. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Laura, <laughs> as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. And I just want to give Mr. John a shout out as well. <laughs> he did very well just sitting there. Didn't pipe in or anything with any reality <laughs> yeah. check or anything like that. So anyway, uh, God bless you. And once again, thank you for coming by. Thanks for having me. How about Miss Laura? Did you enjoy that? I sure hope you did. I really, really enjoyed spending time with her and her husband here in the back of the room as we were recording. And uh, if you have any feedback for Laura, uh, or you just want to send me some feedback regarding any of the other speakers we have on the program, feel free to reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. So, as usual, before I get on this mic, I say a little prayer and then just kind of let it rip. Uh, and uh, so I've been thinking about what kind of experience are we as a group going to have on the back end of this episode? And I'm going to go over a little bit of uh, what I'm still calling listener feedback for now. I got another suggestion this week, and the, the suggestion for listener feedback was 
Sober Logs is kind of a takeoff on Drunk Logs, Sober Logs. And that one came in from John F. And uh, in fact, I'm going to be reading some of his comments here in just a moment. So I don't know. I just may stick with listener feedback. I don't know yet. I really appreciate all you guys uh, reaching out to me, though, with your various comments. So like I said, I was praying about what sort of experience we may be having on the back end of this thing. And, you know, I've been thinking about this uh, over this week, and that is, you know what I am. I say on the front end of this is that it is my job to give people uh, a platform for the amazing stories of recovery all around us. But I've really kind of figured out what I am is just like a, a chairperson for the meeting. You know, in some in fact, sometimes I I picture myself chairing this meeting, and I picture thousands of you sitting out there listening in to the first part and listening to the speaker, and we just get to have a big old meeting together. And so I am honored to be your chairperson for this meeting, this episode. Now let's move on to some listener feedback and enough of my rambling ons, Jenna writes in and Jenna is writing about the episode we had last week with Amy and Spencer. By the way, if you haven't heard that episode, please go back and listen to it. Uh, Amy is in Alcoholics Anonymous. Spencer is in Al-Anon. He actually has his own podcast called The Recovery Show, and it is about their journey uh, together on in this thing called life and in this thing called recovery. And anyway, Jenna writes in and she says, this episode was so timely and really touched my heart. My husband doesn't drink, but he has watched me struggle and stood by my side, sometimes angrily, but always loving me. I could so identify with their story as we too have successful careers and children and have gone through the ups and downs, tears and laughter of this crippling disease. I am 55 days sober. That's great, Jenna. And it has been tough and and a hard battle with the fight. So thank you, Spencer and Amy, for sharing your story and giving hope and light to others in a dark place, Jenna. Well, I passed on your comments to Amy and Spencer, Jenna. Thanks for writing in. Clay writes in. And Clay says, I live in Richardson and grew up in North Dallas. I've been trying to get sober through AA since 2009. I have five weeks today. Fantastic, Clay. My home group is Dallas North. I'm making a meeting every day, reading literature, and listening to speakers through SoberSpeak. I'm trying to stay in the moment and not get ahead of myself. It really is one day at a time. Amen, Brother Clay. I found SoberSpeak when I was looking for some recordings from Chuck C., author of A New Pair of Glasses. I'm very familiar with Mr. Chuck C., Mr. Clay. He is a... Oh, gosh, he is uh, fantastic. Uh, And if you haven't heard his uh, 
tapes or his book or whatever out there online, you can just search for Chuck C. New pair of glasses out there, and I'm sure you can find it. But nonetheless, I think that led me to Sobercast and then to Sober Speak. I love listening to your recordings on Podbean. That's a podcast player for those of you who are not familiar with it. My favorite speaker so far has been Jerry J., the Texas lawyer. Keep up the great service work. You're helping so many of us through your efforts. Clay. Well, thank you, Clay, for writing in. And this is exactly why I do it. Believe me. You know, I heard my friend Dawn say last week that she is doing something similar to what I do. And we call this, as she called hers, a passion project. And I thought, wow, what a great name, because that's what this is for me. It's a passion project. Uh, It's not something I make any money off of. Uh, It's something that I do uh, because I want to try to give back to Alcoholics Anonymous, which has taken, (laughs) taken, given so, so much to me over so many years now. And uh, anyway, uh, thanks again for writing in, Clay. Okay, Kathy writes in and she says, Hi, John, I hope you are well. I have recently discovered the Sober Speak podcast. I have a long commute and can't get too many meetings. So I listen to podcasts on the road. Thanks so much for doing them. I listened to the one about the lawyer from Texas this morning. So good. Once again, that is the Jerry J. Texas lawyer episode. Anyway, she says, I'm interested in being part of the secret Facebook group. Would you please add me? Thanks again, Kathy L. We sent you out the invite. I think that you're in there now, Kathy. Gosh, there's so many people in there. I can't always keep it quite straight. But nonetheless, uh, uh, once again, for those who want to join the secret Facebook group, Uh, or you just want to get email notifications that I send out every once in a while, send me your email address to john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. Jennifer writes in, and Jennifer says, John, I live in Aurora, Illinois, about an hour west of Chicago. I found out about your podcast when Spencer from The Recovery Show announced that you had interviewed him and Amy. That was a great interview. Once again, that's the Amy and Spencer uh, interview. It's the, the episode right before this one you're listening to right now. While addiction runs in our family, I am not an alcoholic. I do, however, struggle with codependency. I have come a long way in the last few years, but I'm always open to learning as much as I can about addiction slash codependency issues. Thanks for all you do, Jennifer. Well, thanks, Jennifer, for writing in, and uh, I'm so glad that we can fill that that space or that need for you. And I'm so glad that you're able to tune in and listen in to us. Maria M writes in and Maria is in Al-Anon. Maria says, hi, John, I found your podcast once again from Spencer at the recovery show. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the episode with Spencer and his wife. Do you know when it will air? Well, it aired last week. I can't remember when you sent this in and when I'm actually getting around to reading your uh, letter here, Miss Maria, but they've already aired. Anyway, my husband is a loved one in recovery. I have attended Nar Anon and Al Anon since 2003. 
He was 12 years sober when he picked up again in 2015. It was a bumpy year or two, but he now has over a year sober again. That's great. As you know, we in the family group also follow a 12-step program. Today, I listened for the first time to your podcast where John W. shared about the 12 principles, and I really liked what I heard, but I was driving and I could not take notes. Is there any way you could add to the show notes or email me the principles for each step? I can remember a few, but not all. I'd like to go over them again and possibly share them in my fellowship. Thanks so much. Well, I reached out to her and I said, um, this is posted on our Instagram account. Uh, I, and uh, we posted it there. I say we. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Miss Cassandra uh, listened to the whole episode. She made a graphic and she, she posted those principles. If you want to follow us on uh, Instagram, we're at, at sober speak, all one word. And all 12 of those principles that John W. talked about in his episode are listed there. Don writes in, D-A-W-N, Don. Don, or as we would say if we were from up east, Don. Don writes in. Uh, sorry for all you people up there in Boston, but it is how you say the word, you know, nonetheless. Dawn, Dawn writes in and she says, I live in Springboro, Ohio with my husband of 10 years and our three dogs. I'm 49 and this is my second time in Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is day 56 with a big exclamation point. All right, Ms. Dawn, that is fantastic. My mom, who is now 86, has been sober since 1983. Well, God bless your mom, Ms. Dawn. She went to rehab twice and it finally stuck. My dad, who is 87, still drinks every day. Oh, wow. That's the other side of the coin there, huh? My first drink was at age six at a celebration dinner for my uncle who didn't have to serve time in prison after he hit and killed an 18-year-old guy. Wow. As a result of drunk driving. Suffice it to say, the drunk seeds were planted and cultivated in me early on. I found your podcast through my therapist, whose name is also John. Well, thank goodness for your therapist, Miss Dawn. Anyway, she says, I think Gary K and Ricky R are my favorite so far. She's talking about a couple of episodes. And then she asks, when is Ricky R. going to do a part two? So we have part two. Oh, and then she says, have a wonderful weekend. And thanks again for helping us in our recovery journey, Dawn. So Ricky R. is going to be out in, it's either going to be next week or the week after that. I don't know. I'm just taking this a week at a time and uh, I'm not really sure yet. Believe it or not, I just kind of decide on the fly which episodes are coming out next week. I, you know, I try to get them in order. Most of the time I do, but I can't remember where Ricky R is in that order. Wally writes in. Now, Wally, were you born in Wally World? I am so sorry, Wally. Did I just say that? I said that at a public level with a lot of people listening. 
I am so, so sorry. He says, hi, John. I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. My daughter is also in the program and she lives in Tyler, Texas. Her friend's father gave me the 79th podcast, Ricky R., who we were just talking about. So that is how I find found out about Sober Speak. With God's help, I will have 11 years soon, one day at a time. Good to connect with you, Wally M. Well, Wally M., thanks for putting up with my silliness. Congratulations on your uh, 11 years. And uh, I'm glad your daughter is down here in God's country. You know, we always say, welcome to Texas. It's a great country. (laughs) All right. Marcy writes in and she says, thank you. I appreciate the ad to the Facebook group. I am in the Frisco group, which is where I go. Tammy is my sponsor. And I know Tammy. She is one heck of a lady. And she recommended the podcast. Well, obviously, she's a heck of a lady if she recommended the podcast. So imagine my surprise when I heard two voices I knew while listening to the fourth step episode. And what she's talking about there is me and my good friend David were doing an episode. While he was doing the episode, I was just kind of teeing it up for him about the fourth step. And so she heard both of our voices and she knew those familiar voices. I'll be sober for three years on the 11th, but I only started attending meetings and working the steps this year. Oh, wow. That sounds like a heck of a story. Anyway, I'm so grateful for going so much deeper in my understanding of what this disease is. Thanks to the wonderful group we have. I'm traveling this week, and so I really appreciate the podcast. I'm the same way, Miss Marcy. I listen to podcasts while I'm traveling, usually not mine. (laughs) I get a little tired of my own voice, uh, but I catch up on some other podcasts. And uh, anyway, I'll look uh, forward to seeing you around, Marcy. And once again, you have one of the best sponsors in the entire universe, Miss Tammy. All right, uh, Kath writes in and she says, Hi, John. Thanks for the prompt response. I responded back to her after she had left me a message uh, via email. And she says, I am a useless Facebook user, (laughs) but I'll give it a go. Hey, me too. Believe me, I've learned everything that I've learned about Facebook this year. And it was out of necessity just because of the podcast. And I guess I didn't have to, uh, but it really has uh, helped in getting the word out. Nonetheless, uh, it is it is really making me chuckle that you have emailed me because I know your voice so well from the podcast. Well, it's me. Anyway, my son asked me what was so interesting and what was not, and he was not at all impressed when I told him. He was more worried I'd mess up any Facebook post I have. <laughs> I told him I'd be fine doing it by myself, thanks, but that's possibly not true. <laughs> I found your podcast by searching for sober podcasts. I haven't been listening to them in any particular order and sometimes takes me a while because of all the interruptions, but I just pause and carry on another time. I have found them so useful and interesting. I thoroughly enjoy listening to them and they are a great distraction if I am having a difficult day. I'm in my 40s. I live near London. Well, hello there, mate. 
did I just say hello? She's not a mate. She's a woman. And that's a really bad London accent. I'm so sorry. Anyway, I live near London with my husband and my children. On the outside, our family looks pretty average. As you can imagine, I am sure my life counts as an average in the world of the alcoholic. I started going to AA some months ago, and I haven't had a drink or drug since then. We are very lucky living near London, London, because there are so many meetings. I have a choice of more than one. Usually I can, t- and I can attend every day, just like my area, you know, and I have a tendency to take that for granted that I have so many meetings where I am. And like you, you have so many meetings, Kath, where you are and near London. And uh, gosh, we should be grateful because I get a lot of people who write in and they do not have that luxury. By the way, Miss Kath, if you happen to see the Queen or uh, Prince Charles or, uh, oh, what's the other guy who just got married? Uh, the other, uh, oh gosh, I'm losing my mind. I know he's married to Megan, but I can't, oh, Harry, if you see them, could you just tell them I said hello and give them a little shout out? I sure would appreciate it. Anyway, she said, I had to amend my sobriety date now around a month ago, as I decided to see what the mouthwash was like, (laughs) got to laugh, she says. I didn't have much at all, but my sponsor and I decided that it didn't count as a sober day. Definitely have some work to do on the brain rewiring. Don't we all, Miss Kath? She says, however, my life has already turned around with the help of the AA Fellowship, the kindness of people in it. Ah. In particular, my amazing sponsor and my supporting and forgiving family. Wow, you are a very lucky woman there. I have had mental health difficulties throughout my life. I won't bore you with the detail, but things came to a head a few years ago and towards the end of my drinking spiraled out of control amongst this. Not a good solution to my problems. In fact, quite the reverse. I know I can never drink safely again, but I have to keep it up just for today. Thanks so much for the truly truly amazing service you are carrying out. I am certain it is helping many people across the globe, and I am grateful for your hard work. All the best, Kath D. Thank you for your kind words, Ms. Kath. I sure do appreciate it, and um, I hope that we are affecting some people. I hope that we are just helping people to be sober for one day at a time out there. And not only just helping people to be sober, but actually, actually helping people to get back into the existence of life and to carry on a life that they would not have been to otherwise and to be happy and fulfilled. And you know, not every day is, is butterflies and roses and unicorns and such, but they can at least face life's problems uh, like a healthy individual, like a healthy human being. All right. Garnett writes in. I love that name, Garnett. Hi, John. I have listened to 
all in big cap letters, the episodes th- thus far, many of them twice. Well, that's great, Gardet. Um, I was, I'm, I don't, man, some of those early ones, though, I don't know if you want to be listening to those, but I appreciate you going back and listening to all of them. I hope you got something out of them. Um, I was very involved in Al-Anon for many years, as I am the granddaughter daughter, sister, and now ex-wife of alcoholics, I discovered that I am, that I too am an alcoholic, but not without lots in big capital letters of kicking and screaming. Just a question, suggestion. I had trouble getting into the rooms because of my father and ex-husband who were, quote, sober, unquote, but not kind, both actively involved in AA. It wasn't until I discovered women's meetings, got a sponsor, and worked the steps that I could accept AA as the solution. Every guest you have on to, I can relate to in one way or another. I'm just wondering if you think of trying someone with a poor opinion of AA that came around to understand that while we may not like every person, we love all of us for keeping the fellowship alive. I am a native Texan now living in Maine via New York City and Boston. So your guests and your voice sometimes make me homesick, but in a good way. Anyway, Thought you may be able to ask around in the Dallas area and see if there was someone with a similar story to mine. I think you have a bigger pool to work with than I do. Laugh out loud. Regardless, I anticipate every Friday hearing the latest guest. You are doing a fantastic job. All the best, Garnett. Well, Garnett, I'm open to a lot of different kinds of stories. And you'll notice I put all kinds of different stories in there. If someone's out there listening to this... And they have been recorded, and they can send me a sample of their talk, so to speak, whatever it is, and you would be interested in being on the podcast, do write in and let me know, john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. All right, Ellen writes in. She says, hi, John, I found your podcast. We're surfing around there and looking for something helpful. I am not a big, quote, joiner all in big capital letters, when it comes to showing up at meetings and groups. I am one of those rather moderate drinking people who generally feel much better when I don't drink at all. But a periodic habit and social life routine gets in the way. Big family history there, lots of drinking pals, etc. Life is better without it, but I'm kind of wishy-washy about embracing it. Thanks so much. Appreciate the podcast. Well, Ellen. Well, Ellen. Good luck working through that pro- through working through that uh, uh, process uh, internally uh, with yourself. And uh, I'm so glad that you tune in and listen to us. John F. John F. writes in, and this is the guy who wrote in and said, uh, "I think you should use drunkologs." He says, "Howdy, John. I've heard people refer to their story as what it was like. What their what they're like, what it was like stories, I'm sorry, as drunkologs. I thought soberlogs was a fun play on this term for your listener feedback section. As a side note, I listen to your podcast religiously. I have been sober since 7 4 
July 4th, oh, 2018, but I have never attended a meeting. So far, your podcasts are as close as I have come. Thanks for being my meeting before a meeting, John F. Well, I'm glad we could serve that purpose. I hope you get to make it into a meeting and experiment what it's like there. All right. Um, Janice writes in and she said, I'm forever grateful for you to connecting me to Megan P as my sponsor. Once again, Megan P, she is absolutely fantastic. And I'm so glad you have her as a sponsor. The podcast, the podcast helps me get through my days. I work from home and the kids, when the kids are at daycare, Oh, and the kids are at daycare. I can listen to back-to-back podcasts. I love the one with you and your wife, Shannon. I do try to attend two meetings a week. Keep up the good work, John. Well, you know, I love that podcast with my wife, Shannon, as well. And once again, you are in good hands with Miss Megan P. I'm glad you two were able to hook up there. Okay, Stacy writes in. And Stacy says... Oh my goodness, with about five exclamation points, John M., I just listened to Silver Speak podcast number 30. Oh, here's about my wife again. I love your wife, Shannon M. What a beautiful light to your podcast and life she is. Well, Stacy, I do have to agree with you there. I got a wonderful vibe from you both. Well, I tell you what, I'm married up and that is... Uh, that is an understatement. Your love for one for one another is a tangible thing. I know surely I know I surely felt it. Just keep just keeping my sobriety going stronger every day. Your work is going to eternal with so many of us. Oh, I love this new life being clean and sober, and it is the best feeling ever. It's nice to know I'm, I'm not alone on the road to my sobriety. Love to you and your amazing family, Stacy G. Well, that just makes the cockles of my heart warm there, Miss Stacy. I sure do appreciate you writing in on Instagram. All right, and Miss Catherine writes in on Facebook. So she put this post out there and it says the day, by the way, there's a lot of things on, on Facebook out there. I can't get everything in, but this one, for whatever reason, just kind of stuck out to me. She says, the day you decide you are more interested in being aware of your thoughts than you are in the thoughts themselves, that is the day you will find your way out. And that is a quote apparently by Mr. Michael Singer. So after posting that, she says, this has been where my head has been all way, all week, working on my quote, self-awareness, unquote, completing my four step. Oh man, completing your four step will put you in a place for sure. That'll make you think about these things and discovering a whole new side of me. That's why we do the work, Miss Catherine. And I think you know that. Uh, but that's fantastic. I love to see the light come on on people. Anyway, she says, perhaps the side of me that existed, but was buried for so long. It's the revealing by peeling back layers of resentment, fear, negativity, 
insecurities, and anger. Quite a process of simplicity, but so difficult to confront and accept one day at a time. All right. Well, I was glad to chair this meeting. We are at the end of this now. And you know, every week, I swear, every week I think, okay, that's going to be the end of listener feedback. <laughs> never, I'm not going to get another email. I better enjoy it while I have it. And then every week I think, and then when I start recording, I'm like, oh man, how am I going to fit all of this in? But anyway, God bless you. I'm doing Namaste hands right now. You can't see it, but you will just have to trust me. I am doing Namaste hands. I have my eyes closed and I have my Namaste hands to my chest. And now I'm going to do a little bow and say, God bless you. Love you. We will see you hopefully next week. I'm not going to say I'm going to be here next week. It's always one week at a time, folks. God bless.